0: At the landing. Wonderful to worship the Lord together with you. Let's continue worshiping Him as we have in song and in prayer over the Word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, through your exalted, precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now come clothed in Him, for we are not worthy to be in your presence apart from Him. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Instruct us by the word that you wrote by your spirit, giving in a vision to John on the island of Patmos, 1900 years ago. Speak to us now, Lord, for your servants are listening. We would see Christ as he stands forth from this holy word, and we would rejoice in seeing him. And maybe some, through live stream or hearing by recording or in this room, might meet and see the risen, saving Christ for the very first time. And how that would double our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, all these things, and with expectation, amen. Having been saved, believers have a security... That God has saved us and that we are being saved, says the New Testament, in the ongoing purification and strengthening of our lives. This sermon and your day today and the experiences of your life are used by God for the believers to cause them to be continuously saved. And we shall be saved. There is a final day when Christ returns and He shall gather to Himself His bride in the ultimate completion of His promised salvation. The Lord loves his church and the way he's preserving his church from the time he chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.11, to the time that he comes back and fully beautifies his bride, he's preserving the church. He said he is faithful to bring to completion what he began in his church. He is faithful to cause the gates of hell to not prevail against the church. So the church around the world, whether it's in Nigeria, as we heard from our precious brother, Pastor Ali Mati last week, who you may or may not know, lost his father February 17th of this last year to martyrdom, persecution for his father being a Christian in Nigeria, to where the church is in Ukraine or to where the church is in Russia or to where the church is in China or to where the church might be in the United States or this very gathering. The Lord loves his global church and his local expressions, so much so that he gives to us his word as the means by which he preserves his church. He's not just going to tell us about an old church in another place far away in another situation. He's going to do a work in us today, faith family at the landing. He's at the Father's right hand, laboring, teaching, speaking, moving among us as a Savior, walking among the lampstands of which we are one by His grace. He's preserving His church. He comes, as He says at the beginning of this passage, as Larry read, with a sharp sword His sharp sword is an image of his judgment and of his healing. Of his power to speak his word out of his mouth and it come to pass. It cuts where he says cut and it heals where he says heal. Don't flinch (laughs) under his sharp sword. His love for his glory, and his gospel, and his church, and for you, and for me, his love for his enemies who stand fomenting at the mouth against him right now, is so great that he speaks his word, and it goes out like a sword. And with one slash, it judges And with another, it heals. Let the sword of Christ as it protrudes from his mouth heal you today. If he has any area of your life in which he means to reveal and to cut, let him do it. Rest peacefully before him and say, Lord, any area of my life you may cut away anything I have held close to and defined myself by, but displeases you as sin, would you remove it, O Lord? Do that in this church. Do that in my heart. Do that among the believers around the world, preparing us for your eventual bodily return. He speaks, Revelation 2, 12 through 17, that Larry just read to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was a city of about 120,000 people. It had one church in it. Can you imagine? Probably between 100 and 200 people in that church. It's the only Christian church in the city because it's one of a handful of only a few Christian churches in the world at the time. They were called atheists because they didn't bow and worship Caesar and they had only one God. They didn't have multiple gods as many in Pergamum had pagan gods of all sorts and kinds that they worshipped. Historians from that time describe the attitude toward Christians, this tiny little band of believers who worshipped, of all things, a carpenter from Nazareth and claimed that he was God. And they were so arrogant to claim that no one had ever come to God before this carpenter from Nazareth was born. And the only way anyone could come to God now and forever was through this carpenter from Nazareth. The Christians, these odd, queer atheists, were hated because they were so arrogant in their teaching that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Sound familiar? Into this church, in this urbane, wealthy lofty, intellectual, cosmopolitan city of Pergamum, Jesus speaks to this small band of believers over a hundred, surely less than 200. And he brings to them three words of encouragement. He's encouraging and loving them the whole while. Remember what he's doing is saying, church at Pergamum, I'm preserving you. I'm preserving you. Church at the landing, I'm keeping you strong. I'm going to speak to you today, and and what I speak to you is going to be a word of encouragement, of praise, and a word to encourage you by correction, and a word to encourage you by promise. Praise, correction, and promise. All three are going to encourage you. You will be blessed by all three of them, though they will come to you in three different ways. First, he says a word of encouragement by approval and praise. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Christ says to the landing and to the church at Pergamum and to all churches, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Satan doesn't have a throne. Jesus is not saying there's an actual seat where Satan sits. He's the king of nothing. He's a fallen angel rebelling against God, leading other fallen angels as demons to rebel against God. But Satan's not omniscient. Satan's not omnipotent. Satan's not omnipresent. God is all those three things. Satan isn't. He's only the God of those who by their sin have yielded to the forces of evil in this world, and he has captured them to do his will insofar as they have handed out their wrists and said, Satan, please take and use me. I desire it. No, Satan's throne is a reference to the fact that Caesar, in no other city except Rome, built a throne for himself right here in Pergamum. Caesar worship was strong here, strongest in all of Asia Minor. You had to say, no matter what God you might like and prefer, you've got gods for all manner of things, gods for fertility, gods for healing, gods for wealth, gods for power and effectiveness, longevity, gods for family and and for farming and all manner of things. Yet, if you have all those gods, that's fine. Have all the ones you wish. Surely, you must, at the end, say, Caesar is Lord. Apparently, this Young man, male name Antipas, whom we know nothing about, said, No, I will not say Caesar is Lord. It says, In the days of Antipas, which likely might mean that he was arrested and he was in prison, either in order to divulge and and be pressured to give up the identities of other Christians so they too could be imprisoned and possibly killed, or to be given time to repent and confess Caesar is Lord. He didn't. Even to the very end, Christ says, I know. I know Antipas. I know what he went through. I know what you said and did. And you, the church at Pergamum, you were faithful. You did not give up the faith. You held fast to my name. You told people about Jesus. You, you didn't let it just be God bless America. You said, Christ is the hope of America. You, you didn't just talk about God in the public setting where everybody could affirm and agree with you because they can fill in the blank for whatever they want God to mean. No, no, no. You said, I serve not Allah, not any of the gods of the Hindus. I serve no generic God of the deists. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He's the one to whom I will bow, and he alone. You did not give up my name, the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So the Pergamum Church is praised and encouraged by the Lord. Continue landing, speaking for Christ. Continue boldly proclaiming Christ. Let's tell Proctor and the world around us, our hope is in Christ. Yours can be too. Let's tell those to whom we send missionaries, our hope is in Christ. Let's make no compromise with those who want to merely remove the name of Jesus Christ from the public sphere and the public square. Let's boldly and without failure and without flinching declare Christ privately and publicly, just as the church at Pergamum did. Here is a word of praise from the Lord Jesus. I know what you're facing. I know that Satan is the one behind the call to bow to Caesar, and you have not given in. And Antipas for his faithfulness, lost his life. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus said, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I know, I know, the risen Christ says, you will suffer for preserving and being faithful to my name. How does a traumatized church Respond when one of their own is martyred? What would you do (laughs) if you got an email that said, um, one of the elders from the landing was killed for his profession of faith in Jesus Christ? And the persecutors who killed him said that if they can find any of his friends or other church members, they will do the same to them. And they found out the location of where we meet and they set up a blockade off the road right at our driveway. Would you come the next Sunday? Would you flee? God being my helper, I'd come. What does the church in Pergamum do? Do they flee for protection? We've got to circle the wagons. We've got to build a fortress we're in trouble, they're going to kill us, let's retreat? Or would you capitulate? Let's, let's, let's sit down and negotiate with them. Maybe, maybe we can just stop talking about Jesus and just talk about God, and maybe they'll be okay. They'll let us live. Let's compromise. That, by far, is the most common response of churches throughout the history of the world. Or third opportunity or option, proclaim with compassion and with truth, faithfully speaking, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can only kill us to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's the same question churches in the 21st century West are now facing. There will be pressure, there will be increased pressure against churches who stand for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and singularly proclaim the truth that salvation coming before God is available and open and offered through Him and His name and His name alone. There is salvation in no one else. Churches who proclaim the gospel as the church at Pergamum did will be opposed. But the opposition is really a badge of honor, is it not? Every matter Of gospel importance that the Bible teaches we must stand firm on. Pray for myself and Pastor Andrew and our families. Pray for the elders and the deacons and leaders of this church. Pray for you and your family as you are faced with right and wrong, good and evil, purity and impurity questions that the Bible speaks clearly and decisively on. Pray that God give you the compassionate, humility, and steel spine to stand firm on those questions. Pray that we are able to raise up children in Sunday school, youth in our youth teaching opportunities, young adults and families, and all persons married and single, widows and widowers, new believers and longtime saints, so that we might all have a Pergamum-like steel spine to say, we will not give up the faith, we will not deny his name. As bold as the church in Pergamum was in sharing their faith in Jesus to an unwelcoming culture, they were not theologically discerning. Christ comes with a word of correction. It's a kind and encouraging word. He only does this for those whom He loves. He only does this for those whom He calls sons as an expression of His love for them. So receive now, as the church at Pergamum first heard this read to them, receive it for ourselves as the Lord might use it to correct us. I don't necessarily think that the church at Pergamum matches the church at the landing Exactly. But I found for myself something glorious here. You will too. Even if we're not the church that comes under the correction that Pergamum receives from the Lord Jesus, notice how much he loves them to talk to them this way and receive for ourselves all that he may have for us. Look at verses 14 through 15. This is where Jesus says, But... Jesus starts the sentence with, but, I have a few things against you. Here they are. You, Pergamum church, have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In Pergamum, evidently, there was a group. Actually, there there are other churches in other cities with this same group, Nicolaitans, who taught similar to what Balaam taught 1,500 years before, that it's okay to eat in worship, food sacrificed to idols. It's okay to publicly worship with pagan gods for whatever benefit that might offer to you. And it's okay to practice sexual immorality as well. That's what the Nicolaitans taught, and that's exactly what Balaam 1,500 years before taught. Jesus is saying, you've compromised, not just because some of you are committing sexual immorality or eating food sacrificed to idols. That may or may not be happening. What he's pointing out very specifically is he's saying, as a church, you're okay with letting the Nicolaitans teach that in your church. You need to repent of letting that false teaching in your church which leads to these evil acts. Remove the Nicolaitans if they will not repent. Come to them, plead with them, gently ask them to repent. If they refuse, set them outside your church and do not let them teach what is false and leads to sin." Do you remember what Balaam taught? Do you remember what's behind this passage? Balaam is mentioned five or six times in the New Testament as a guy who did really bad stuff. Let me tell you what he did very briefly so you can feel the weight of what Christ is correcting in the Pergamum church and maybe in us. In Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam is a prophet who doesn't like Israel. He strikes up a deal with one of Israel's enemies, a pagan king, Balak. He was the king of Moab. Balak said, I'll give you money if you speak against Israel. They had just, you might remember in Numbers 21, they had just grown very strong, the Israelites. They had a miraculous healing happen to them where they had been bitten by snakes. They were all dying. Moses was told by God to make a snake out of brass, put it on a pole, raise it up. And the people of Israel only had to look at that snake and they were healed. They then went on to conquer several kings in Numbers 21. They come to Numbers 22, and Balaam, this guy who doesn't like them at all, stands forward, and he strikes up a deal with a pagan king nearby. And the pagan king, Balak, says, I'll pay you good money if you curse them for me. Balaam hears from the Lord four times and each time the Spirit of the Lord comes on Balaam and he steps up, he's ready to open his mouth to say bad things about Israel and the only thing that comes out is, God bless you, God loves you, you are God's chosen people. Four times it happens in, one chap- in three chapters. Balak, of course, said, hey, I didn't get my money's worth. I wanted you to curse Israel and all you do is bless Israel. So Balaam and Balak conspire together secretly, not public prophecy anymore. Balaam says something to the effect, I'm I'm keeping your money, but I've got another idea. Balaam gives quiet counsel in backroom conversations to the people of Israel that says, you can worship with the Moabites. You can worship their God and eat their food to their God in an act of worship. And you can commit sexual immorality with their women and receive the fertility blessings into your own life from doing that. You can do it, says Balaam. He didn't publicly curse the people of God, but he sold them out. He sold out the people of Israel. And so you find Moses describing exactly what had happened in Numbers 31, 15 through 16. Listen to Moses' words. Moses said to them, Have you let all these Midianite sinful women live? Behold these on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon, among the congregation of the Lord. You see, it was Balaam's advice that led the people of Israel into sin and Jesus now says, I'm making a transfer of teaching from my word 1,500 years ago in numbers to you, Pergamum Church, and maybe to the church in the United States and in the West in 2021. You've listened to bad teaching and secret backdoor conversations where you've received counsel from ungodly voices that have said, it's okay to worship all the other gods in the culture as long as you also keep worshiping your God. And it's okay to commit sexual sin like everyone else does in the culture who does not know God because our God likes to forgive and we like to sin and we make then a good pair. Christ comes to the church at Pergamum and he says... The spirit of Balaam, whose name in Hebrew means conqueror of the people. Boy, did he ever. Is in these people called the Nicolaitans, whose name in Greek means conqueror of the people. Okay, Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Compromise in the Pergamum church and compromise in the 21st century Western church, maybe churches around the world, is being exposed and warned here in Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Oh, well done, church at Pergamum. Well done, church, for holding on to the name of Jesus, singing the name of Jesus, going out in public and sharing the name of Jesus. Creating all manner of ways to demonstrate and reveal the beautiful and precious name of Jesus. But does it disconnect with some secret things going on in your life where you're actually nodding and agreeing with all manner of unholy pagan worship even to the point of committing sexual immorality? You see, when the gospel settles upon a person, there's no immediate perfection. We're all battling sin. We're all battling temptation. There's no temptation that is not common to man. Every one of us struggles with with living out the gospel that we have been called by, and it has nothing to do with adding some good works on top of the grace of our forgiveness. Oh, no. That's one of the errors that lurks at the right hand and on the left in our culture today. No, in fact... What Christ has purchased on the cross is both the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, and the power to carry out the good works that he has planned beforehand for us to walk in. So the gospel is marvelously marvelously summarized in Ephesians 2. 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're Christ's, he comes to you right now by his spirit with a sword. And the sword says, There's something poisonous in you. That's not who you are since I have remade you. Let's remove it. Let me surgically take it out. Hold still. So my healing sword does not turn against you in judgment. And remove from you, I will, this tumor, this organ, this poison, this sepsis of sin that must be removed. I do it because I love you, and I'm preserving you, and I love my glory, and I love my gospel, and I love your witness to my enemies, that they may become my children. Christ is saying to the church at Pergamum, Christ is saying to the church at the landing, if you have tolerated in your life individually, as a family, as a church family, sin of any sort or kind, hold quiet and still as the Lord identifies it, and then repent of it. Release it. Take it from me, Lord. I would be healed. I would be forgiven. I would be made righteous and strong. I would be made more and more from one degree of glory into your image. Feel the joy and the hope and the delight rising in your soul as the Lord shapes you moment by moment, day by day, prayer by prayer into his image. Look at verse 16. He warns the church at Pergamum and us as well. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the word of my mouth. You see the image? Therefore repent, telling the church at Pergamum to repent, so also us. If not, I will come to you soon. This is not the second coming bodily. This is his coming by the Holy Spirit to judge. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see what's going to happen? Christ will come back into churches and he will war against the ones who hadn't been called to repent, who continue in their sin. It's an act of great mercy and kindness for a church to bring about loving discipline. It's it's going to one another and saying, may I bring you to Christ and the forgiveness that's found there as I have found it. I will come to you, church, And war against them, the ones you've allowed to remain, with the sword of my mouth. Do you remember? You may not remember. I didn't. So I'll remind you. What was the solution? What was the resolution that happened back in Numbers 25? When under Balaam's counsel, some Israelite men were letting Midianite women come to them, and in Moab, in public, in the congregation, as it were, they were eating together and worshiping false gods, and they were committing acts of sexual immorality to that god as an act of worship to him. Do you remember what happened? Do you remember how that was resolved? The Spirit of the Lord came upon a man whose name you might not know. His name was Phineas. He was the son of a priest. Phineas rose up in that event, horrified by what he saw. And he took a spear, it says. And with all his might, he ran through both persons simultaneously. It says, he pierced their belly. Immediately, the Bible says, Numbers 25, verse 8, God's wrath was removed from Israel. (laughs) And the plague that he had sent against them for this idol worship and immorality was ended. Immediately. Is the Old Testament too extreme? Is it too violent? Does it argue against unbelief? Does it argue against faith and create unbelief to think, what a grotesque and dramatic and violent and extreme God for him to come upon a Phineas and run through two sinners while they sin with a spear? Is that is that tolerable? Can you preach that on a Sunday morning in your sermon? Can I even have that thought in my head? Do you not see that for your sin and mine a holy Christ had a Roman centurion run a spear through his belly so that the wrath of God against me and you was lifted? Glory in stunned, spine-tingling, scalp-stimulating, heart-beating, mind-blowing wonder that the gospel is powerfully proclaimed in Numbers 25 so that you'll hear it today. The church at Pergamum and the church at the landing and you and me, we don't come say, Lord, wherever your spear is, Do it to me. No, no, no. The spear of the Lord pierced his son already so that you come to him and all you get is mercy when all you deserve is wrath. The largest Protestant denomination in the world right now has the spirit of Christ walking among them for discipline at this very moment. Some churches have the spirit of the Lord walking among them so that their lampstands don't go black and out forever. Maybe you've had the Lord discipline you in your life. I surely have, many times. He does it because I'm a son, you're a son, a beloved and adopted and precious child. And he does it internally and sweetly and and meets you powerfully. If if you come to him and say, Lord, you've identified this sin in my life and I simply want to agree with you and say, please forgive me for it. He does in an instant by the power of the blood that he shed on the cross. And you are white as snow, white as snow, clean and forgiven. You are white as snow. Praise his holy name. So the the final way Christ encourages the church at Pergamum and us is he says, when you repent... of of either participating in such sins, or approving of others who do, or just not removing it from your midst, when you repent, you'll discover that I've already prepared and purchased for you your eternal life in boundless joy. That's what he means by verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that is to the one who receives, I will give him some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This conquering is nothing other than the receiving of Christ. It's no added work we do. He's already done the work. We are simply receiving it It is, in fact, our salvation. What is the hidden manna? It's hidden because it's the very person of Christ. Christ said, I am the bread of life. I'm the manna that comes down from God. Feed on me. And yet he's he's hidden to so many still until he comes in glory to bodily stand on the earth again. He remains hidden. And so you and I say, there is a manna, there's a food, there's a delight. I don't need the delight of being part of the pagan worship and the food offered to idols. I don't need that food. What I want is that sweet joy that I never want to end when I gather with other believers and we're talking about Christ and I'm loved and they're loved and we're loved under the spirit of God and we don't want that joy and that soul satisfying food to ever leave. That's the hidden manna. Christians in Pergamum who were estranged and outcast, persecuted and alone, hindered from eating at these mighty banquets that the great city and a great worship of Caesar and the other pagan gods would throw, they were all estranged from those things because they believed not in Caesar or any of the other gods, but in the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. They had the hidden manna. And Christ says, I know, I'm coming to feed you on myself, And so when we get to heaven, it will be God through Christ that we will be enjoying without end and without limit forever and ever. Oh, may it be the taste of a foretaste right now. What is the white stone? The white stone in that culture probably immediately meant a not guilty verdict from a tribunal. That's what the white stone as opposed to the black stone meant. So immediately he says, I've washed your sins away. I died on the cross. I cleansed you from your sin. You've got the white stone. I've already made the stone white and it's yours. I also have written on it a name no one knows except the one to whom it's given. That new name is almost assuredly a name of the person as they have been named by God, whose name is hidden from those who don't know him. It comes from Zechariah 3, 8, 9. Listen to this background of this white stone with a name on it. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, the Nazar, foretaste of Christ, a reference to Christ. For behold, on the stone, almost like Almost like God says, I'm going to take the branch, the Nazar, the the foretaste of Christ, and I'm going to write on the stone. For behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. (laughs) Okay, a stone with seven eyes. That's what it says. I'm taking it. This stone knows everything, sees everything. You, you, You don't need to whitewash yourself at all before you come to Christ. You don't need to clean anything before you come to Christ. You come just as dirty as you are because the stone has seven eyes. It sees everything. I will engrave its inscription, Zechariah says, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Revelation nineteen twelve pictures Christ, his eyes like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows, but himself, verse 16, goes on to say on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And here's the name. Here's the name written on the thigh of Christ. And it's the name written over you. And it's the name written over all believers, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is all a fulfillment in Revelation of this glorious passage with which I will end in Isaiah 62, one through five. For Zion's sake, the Lord says, I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. I came with a sword out of my mouth, and it was judgment and healing. Now I'm going to speak your new name, and I'm naming you after me. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of our God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. How many people have treated you like you're forsaken and cursed you that way? Nobody loves perfectly in this world. Every one of us has been forsaken. And it hurts most by the people we thought it would come from least. No longer shall you be called forsaken. Or your land shall no more be termed desolate. And you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. No wonder the unbelieving world hates marriage so much. It's what God calls us. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's how a church comforts themselves after they lost their Antipas. That's how a church can say, He knows, even though we're living next door to Satan's throne, He knows. He'll remove from among us all that displeases him. Show us, Lord, whatever it is. We will, we will take the persons, me, you, each other, we will take one another. Not out in public for a spearing. We'll take you into a private and sweet conversation where you can meet with the Lord and he can open up his side, as it were, and show you where he was already speared for you. I love that so much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Revelation 2. I thank you so much for Numbers 25. I thank you so much for Isaiah 62 and for the way that you have mingled them together for the good of our body. I pray that you might strengthen each person in this room to quietly sit before you in repentance if there's anything you are bringing to their minds right now of which you would remove powerfully and sweetly from them that they might be well. I pray that if there's anyone through the hearing of my voice who has not experienced the glory of salvation, yet you would lead them to trust in you right now and in a prayer of their own speaking, say, Lord, I repent of my sins and I receive your forgiveness. Lord, let people watching via internet and people in this room and people who hear by recording, come in droves to this Christ, this welcome offer of free grace that's found in him alone, having been purchased by his death and resurrection and now freely offered to all who will receive. You are calling. Your love is so strong and will not be denied. Your grace, so irresistible that you will preserve your church from now until the day your feet set foot on planet earth. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for these great promises. We thank you for the strong word you give to us through your word in per- to Pergamum. And we thank you for the mighty, mighty grace that is the motive and the driving incentive in your heart for all of it. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing together. Would you stand? Lord, we wait for your white stone. We wait for your new name. Circumcise our hearts now, Lord. Help us to believe in you. Standing on the promises of Christ my King Through eternal ages let His praises sing Glory in the highest I will shout and sing Standing on the promises of God Standing on the promises that cannot fail
1: When the howling storms
0: and down and fear us by the living word of God I shall prevail standing on the promises of